Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 47 for June 2nd, 2011. Yep, we're almost done with uh, Gary Seven. And in fact, uh, with the exception of a little guest starring role tomorrow, or I'm sorry, next week, this will be our last Gary Seven episode. Aww. Yeah, that's kind of sad. Yeah, Gary and But uh, he's run his course. <laughs> well, he had a lot longer course here than he ever did on TV. So That's true. And, you know, he's he's made a couple of appearances in the novels, which... I've been reading, so uh, he, you know, Gar- that that assignment Earth episode is has spawned off quite a bit of expanded universe type media. That's pretty impressive. Uh, yeah. Probably the only other episode that's spawned off more would be expanded universe type stuff. I would say is, I mean, definitely the Guardian of Forever episode. Oh. There's been a lot of mm-hmm. Guardian of Forever. Novels and comic books and stuff. Um, How about Mirror Universe? Oh uh, yeah, definitely Mirror Universe beats it. That that would be it. That'd be the number one thing. Yeah. And then Tribbles. Did mm, some of that. A yeah, but I think I think there's been more Gary stuff than Tribble stuff. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But just so yeah. far, you can go with those cute little guys. Well, the Tribbles had an episode of the animated series that was a. a sequel and then there was an episode of Deep Space Nine yep. and then there's been a couple of comic books Trials there's, and Tribulations <laughs> there's, a, there's a good Tribble it's, it's, a, it's an issue solely Tribbles <laughs> it's a, IDW did a Alien Spotlight series where they just took random species in the Star Trek universe and right. One of the issues they focused solely on dribbles, which is actually a pretty good story. <laughs> now that's creative. That's pretty good. <laughs> you could, you could actually take the tribbles, who who were a fine little supporting character, and bring those into the forefront. That's pretty interesting. Do they actually have any intelligence? Um, well, it, it, not that would make, that would help. That would help the storyline. Not really. It's more how they interact with the Klingons and the humans in the story. So they're on a Klingon planet where the Tribbles have pretty much taken over and the and the Klingons are not too happy about it. <laughs> and then the only dialogue the Tribbles really have is you see like little word balloons. Hungry, hungry, hungry. You know, they're not actually saying it, but you, you're getting their uh, their feelings. Wow. That <laughs> has the potential for thrills. It, it's, it's actually really good. <laughs> <laughs> good writer. Good writer. Yeah. Speaking of good writer... Yeah, Can we so, see what uh, Mr. Byrne has for us? Sure. So uh, all three of the issues we're going to do today is John Byrne. Uh, we're going to do Assignment Earth 4 and 5. And then we're going to do Leonard McCoy, Frontier Doctor number 3. Yes. And the reason why we're jumping to number 3 and not doing 1 and 2 is that 1 and 2 has absolutely nothing to do with Gary Seven, where this issue number 3 
He's a, a big player. So next week we're going to do Frontier Doctor number one, two, and four. Cool. So if you don't want to listen to these synopsis out of order, stop us right before we get to it this week. And then next week listen to the episode and you can come back and listen to number three. Right. Because there is a lot of stuff going on that leads into three. That no. because because I know I skipped. I mean, well, I read a little bit of the first issue, but there's things that obviously happened in one and two that I haven't read yet, and I'm kind of surprised on some things in in issue three. Huh. Well, we'll Which talk I'll about talk that about. later because I uh, I thought that they were pretty independent of each other, with the exception of introducing the two new people. But we'll talk about that later. That's the two new people. Yes. <laughs> exactly. All right, so we'll go ahead and jump into Assignment Earth number four. This was released by IDW, May 2008, entitled We Have Met the Enemy. And the writer and art is done by John Byrne, colors by Tom Smith, letters by Robbie Robbins, and edits by Chris Royale. The cover shows an injured Gary being cradled by Roberta with some nasty tentacles with needle appendages surrounding her. The whole cover looks like it's bathed in this eerie green light. So it's uh it's it's an okay cover. She's about to get stuck and get and what's wrong with Gary? We'll find out. At the beginning, first page, we're treated with six images of uh, a montage of Roberta changing into various outfits, ranging from a flowing kimono-type outfit to a tiny strapless dress that Roberta has to pull both up and down to barely cover up her dignity. It's actually a kind of funny picture. Uh, we find out that Roberta is having Beta 5 create these outfits for her as she prepares for a hot date this weekend. When Gary comes in and catches her, he is very angry and, and berates not only Roberta, but Isis and even Beta 5 for wasting resources on I such... I am very you know, angry. Very angry. I don't think that's what he sounds like. It, it just reminded me a little bit of Mar Marvin the Martian. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so it was a bad impression. Go. All right. So Beta 5, or Betty, as Roberta is now calling her receives a coded message that was sent three years ago by Agents 347 and 201, which everybody will remember were the two agents that uh, Gary was sent to replace in the great Star Trek episode Assignment Earth, a.k.a. Roberta's former bosses. So Gary and Roberta go to a small town that 347 and 201 had their unfortunate auto accident. They check into the same hotel that the pair stayed in three years ago. Using the Beta 5 green cube as some sort of compass, Gary is able to find the exact room that the pair stayed in. Performing a nearly magical bioscan level 9, the computer is able to project 347 and 201 as they prepared to leave to stop the launch of the rocket. And this is the rocket that had the, the nuclear platform that Gary ultimately had to destroy. So 201 is explaining how they might have evidence that an alien race called Counter-Strike might be at work here. Gary is shocked to hear this, 
but he's interrupted by the return of the elderly couple that is actually occupying the room that they're in at the moment. Gary and Roberta dash out, and Gary explains who Counter-Strike are. They are an alien race that go off and destroy civilizations and planets that they feel or that they feel have advanced too far. With this new information, Gary wants to learn more about how 201 and 347 passed away those many years ago. Driving down the road that the duo had taken to the launch site, Gary performs another bio scan and watches the car that 201 and 347 are driving. And they watch as a truck, a large truck, purposely rams them into a support pillar and causes them to crash and explode. Roberta and Gary travel to the local police station to see if there was any investigation into the accident. When they inform the staff of the case they are looking into, the two police officers on duty go crazy and start shooting at them. Gary is able to tranquilize one of them with his hypopin, uh, or hypnopin, but the second one is successful in shooting Gary in the back. With Gary unconscious, Roberta uses the hypnopin to put the remaining officer to sleep. Roberta is able to get Gary into the car and they race off. As she's driving, she is engulfed in a strange light and finds herself aboard an alien spacecraft. Huge, monstrous, purple slug-looking creatures grapple for her and the suddenly revived Gary. As they struggle, the slugs start to shake and pass out. Gary explains that Beta 5 must have created a disruption wave to render the creatures unconscious. Gary states that there's nothing that they have that can actually hurt these creatures, but he grabs a phaser and starts shooting at random spots throughout the ship. Eventually, he tells Roberta to expel all the air out of her lungs and blast a hole in the hole. The two are forcefully sucked out into the abyss of space. Within seconds, the two dematerialize and then find themselves reappearing within another ship with, uh, with, with large slugs of their own. But these slugs are shaded a nice blue tint. Gary explains that these are the same species as Counter-Strike, but they are on their side. These new aliens fire on the Counter-Strike vessel, destroying them completely. Gary explains that the random firing he was doing on the first ship was to bring down the shields and allow the, the good slugs uh, attack to succeed. Suddenly, Gary again succumbs to his injuries and passes out. A day later, we find ourselves in the New York office. There, a, re a resurrected Gary, Roberta, and a large blue slug creature are talking. We learn that Gary was able to recover from his near-fatal wounds in only 24 hours. The slug realizes that Roberta is uncomfortable with his form and transforms into a good-looking young man. The alien explains that the police officers that were brainwashed by Counter-Strike had also been returned to normal without any memory of them attacking Gary and Roberta. Roberta fears that this might be the last mission for Gary, but he quickly points out that uh, he will be staying a little bit longer and that this news seems to please Roberta greatly. So she might have a little crush on, on our friend Gary. Maybe I'm reading into it. We'll talk about it later. Anyways, Roberta explains how it's convenient that Gary could speak the languages of the slugs and how odd they almost seem like they knew Gary personally. Gary's final line with a smug expression is, No, Roberta, 
they are the people that I work for. So uh, a little different than what uh, they look like in the DC comics. Uh, the final, <laughs> the final two pages is a silent story uh, where it shows a purse snatcher grabbing an old lady's purse, and then the cat Isis is able to catch up with him, turn into her human form, bash him on the head with a trash can before returning back to the cat form and walking away. So uh, kind of a, a little short Isis story. A cute little vignette. Yeah. What do you think of the uh, Aegis or however you would – whatever they're called in this continuity? Uh, Aegis. Aegis. But they're yeah, not but called Aegis on that. That was I know. Yeah. yeah. It, it, something that's going to be interesting to talk about is the compare and contrast between the <laughs> uh, Marvel take on this and DC Burns. Take. Oh, was... DC take. Sorry. Yeah. DC take and Burns take because they are decidedly different. Right. Well, but they don't necessarily have to be because, I mean, they no. do explain that these slug creatures are shapeshifters, so they could still be the, you know, large humanoid people we saw in the in the DC comics. Mm. Possible. Um, they also never refer to their name in this story. They never call them the Aegis, and I don't think they call them anything else either. Nope, just my boss. Right. So it does kind of keep things open. So you think Burns probably familiar with the continuity put forward by the other comics? I doubt it. Yeah. I really doubt it. I mean, he, he's worked for DC, but I really don't think he he was trying to keep in continuity with any of the previous stories. Well, I don't know if he was actually trying. I just wonder if he was aware of it. I don't know. I don't know. I did read an interview with him back when he first started doing Star Trek comics, and mm-hmm. and you know he was talking about how he was approached to do it, mm-hmm. and he was adamant that he didn't want to do Star Trek comics because he would have to worry about getting the actors' approval on their likenesses and things like that. And I think that's why he's steered towards the more obscure characters, because you notice that in none of his stories he actually has kirk or anybody as a as a main character right he does have them in there to to kick off the uh assignment earth series but yeah you're right right so yeah so i don't know i don't know how much research he went into the other you know the marvel and the dc and i really doubt he went and read some gold key but who knows (laughs) right but but anyways uh this is definitely, I think, a different take of the Aegis uh, than what we saw last week. Yeah, quite, week quite different. I mean, they're blobby, bug-eyed, brontosaurus kind of shaped. And they seem to have uh, many legs, and, and, and two of them are arms. They're weird-looking things. Where are you getting brontosaurus? Because they look like... It looks like a brontosaurus. What? Slugs? Yeah. Well... I- that is a take on them, but I think they look more like brontosauruses just because they've got, um, well, a body that kind of looks like a brontosaurus. They've got a long neck. They don't seem to, like, alter their shape much. I mean, they look like a brontosaurus with lots of drippy things and uh, and a lot of legs coming out of them to me. Yeah, I, I can see That's the brontosaurus thing. Yeah. I mean, it, I depends just on the, the, it depends on the drawing. Yeah, yeah some, I just kept thinking they, they look like slugs. With tentacles, but right. I could see the Baronosaurus look. Yeah. The ships were very interesting also. Uh, the Aegis ships. Because, of course, in the in the DC take, we never saw any ships or anything. We just saw the Aegis just pop out of nowhere. 
But these guys have ships, and they're interesting ships. They're obviously very advanced. They're very big on the inside. There's no straight lines allowed in these designs. I mean, everything is, is like, a, like an ellipse, a curve. I mean, even the, uh, the windows uh, or viewports, whatever they are, to the outside uh, that you can see uh, from the inside of the ship, everything is a curve. Yeah, and, and this inside of the ship looks nothing like. I mean, we did see an Aegis base in in the DC one, right. so uh, the architecture and the technology don't match at all. No, not at all. This looks very organic, where it seemed more like in the DC one, everything was like um, oh, a lot of a lot of straight lines. Yeah, a lot of like stony kind of stuff, and very tall, reaching into the sky kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I like the inside of the ships, but the when it shows the exterior, uh, I don't know. I don't really care for the. I don't know. It just looks like it has like a main body, uh, two nacelles, and a bunch of like little bubbly things on it. Which yeah, right. So I mean, for them being advanced, I I don't know. I was expecting cooler looking ship. Plus, I don't even know why they even have ships. Because they can teleport from one side of the galaxy to the other, right? Yep, that's true. But I guess it just comes down to if you need to have a base of operations for any period of time. Right. You know. So, uh, you know, the U.S., you know, we love our ca- aircraft carriers because we can just put one over in, in a place we want to be at, and then we can do what we want to from the aircraft carrier. So, I don't know. Eh. Yeah, Good I got you. I thought it was interesting in the book where they were recounting the history of Counter-Strike. And, uh, and this is before you knew what Counter-Strike was, really. And it was kind of cool how they were showing some of the different peoples that were basically attacked by Counter-Strike. And they showed uh, uh, Vulcans uh, right. effectively fighting against Counter-Strike through wisdom. And then they showed uh, another race fighting against them with savagery. And it took me a few minutes, but I finally recognized them as Klingons. You know, the guys with the helmets and stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, which at first, I did not see that at all. I just thought, well, here's some random, you know, random people. And I started noticing, oh, it's, that guy's got a beard. That's, and the bushy eyebrows. No, and bushy you're right. Eyebrows. And then I did so not see them. Klingons. Huh. I mean, very uncharacteristic. I mean, they had pistols that looked like human pistols. And very human-looking tanks, too. Exactly. But then when you look closer, oh, Cleons. Yeah. Hmm. I thought that was kind of uh, interesting. He kind of camouflaged them. Now, in regards to this, uh, this whole Counter-Strike thing, so all of the uh, previous issues reveals that you know the Soviets had advanced technology and the military had the ability to clone things and, and you know something that's above and beyond what humans should be able to do in the early 70s. Right. Are they saying that that was done by Counter-Strike, that Counter-Strike gave this information to humans so that they would become more advanced so that they would then have a reason to destroy them? Uh, I didn't get that from it. I mean, maybe. But it's like, I thought Counter-Strike's whole deal was they wanted to stop races that they thought had progressed too far. So why would you, I mean, unless you did, I mean, unless you got your jollies off of destroying races, I mean, why would you give people technology? Oh, so you were trying to say that they, they, just... they, they were trying to destroy them, get them to fight each other more? 
by giving certain factions uh, the Russians uh, technology? Yeah, because you know when he's giving that little brief explanation of how past uh, cultures were able to to beat him. Right. He says that Counter-Strike is now taking a more subtle approach, mm-hmm. and Roberta says, oh, Mr. Seven, you mean they were the ones that gave us the atomic bomb and bad stuff like that? So I was wondering, is that what they're, hope- is that what they're trying to imply, that oh, all, this, all this super technology in the previous issues, that's where it came from? Maybe, because they give us no, exp- no other explanation. Right, which was, again, di- I think it was a disappointing... It was a disappointing end to that storyline that, you know, where this technology was coming to the Soviets and the Americans, and then that one sentence is the only explanation you're ever given. Right, and I didn't even put that together. I mean, I I heard – I mean, I read what Roberta said and stuff, but um, I really didn't understand that that they were potentially the source of all the anomalous uh, technologies that had – that popped up in the previous issues. Yeah, I think that's what they were going for. Yeah, I, it's the only explanation I see. I agree. So, c- can I mention one more thing about the Aegis or whatever we want to call them? Sure. So, since they're established as shapeshifters, are they implying that Isis, who's a, obviously a shapeshifter, is really one of the Aegis and that she's a giant slug as well? Maybe. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't that be interesting if they had one of the Aegis along as kind of like a uh, like a handler of Seven, um, right, or a partner or something? Well, because I, I yeah, mean, he definitely. obviously he doesn't report to her, but he takes her advice on things. So, you know, he he definitely seems to be the leader in most cases, or the Beta Five is, <laughs> uh, which is kind of interesting. And Isis definitely seems to be more the subservient person, the more the junior person. It would be interesting if she did actually turn out to be an Aegis. Right. Uh, I had not, I had not put that that two and two together, my friend. But it's a, def, a distinct possibility. Hmm. Although it was good that we actually saw what happened to Seven's predecessors, I thought it was a little far fetched. Even though I know Beta 5 can do anything, and we're constantly being shown that, <laughs> how they were projecting exactly what was going on with, the, uh, with his predecessors, Gary's predecessors. Right. I mean, and... was, was that all part of an actual recording? I mean, they got a message, okay. They mentioned that at the beginning or whatever. But, right. I mean, did, did this message include all that detail, including their, their dialogue? Or, and, or was this somehow reconstituted out of the ether by the ever-amazing uh, Beta 5? I think it's supposed to be reconstituted out of the ether, that they wow. that he knew where they were and was some able, somehow able to reconstruct their movements and, and dialogue, which does not make any sense at all. <laughs> yeah, they're... Uh, they're, they're they're an advanced race, and obviously that's an advanced computer. But man, so I wonder if Beta Five had to go through all the occupancies of that room for the last three years until he it finally got to <laughs> I got the right ones. So all of the you know uh, drug deals that went on in there, and uh-huh. the <laughs> politicians with 
uh, you know, the escorts and stuff, you know, like you see in the movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> or worse, just the family's vacation arguing with each other. <laughs> exactly. All those people that were in those hotel rooms. So I had to sift through all that, and then it was like, oh, wait, here they are. Right. And I'm going to put it, put you right at the conversation, the one conversation that they had in this room that you actually need to know about. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, it just no. Go ahead. And I, I was also wondering now. Now maybe I just missed this, but so these things that happened to these people took place uh, three and a half years ago before Seven actually does something about it. Is that am I getting that? Am I getting that right? Well, in in Assignment Earth, he he's there because the other two disappeared, and then they right. find out that they died in a car accident, and then. It's it's said that it was a, an unfortunate car accident, and that he then has to go and stop that nuclear platform from sure. being launched. Sure. So I guess I just assume that because he, you know, because it was labeled an accident, that he never went back and did this incredible bio scan until they got a message in the future that implied that there might be something up. So he thought it was just a random chance. Random chance, right? Mm. That he didn't realize that there was dirty work afoot. Right. Okay, I guess that could explain it. That's the only explanation I can come up with. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just that whole bioscan thing just blew my mind. And then he does it again on the road too. And, right. But then he sees uh, the explosion and everything. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of stretching things, I think. But eh, whatever. I like the story. Yeah. Going forward in the story, when they're on the uh, the anti Aegis ship. There's a part where the amazing Beta 5 knocks out all the Counter-Strike uh, aliens. Right. And, and he grabs one of their weapons. And Roberta comes out and says, oh, you're not actually going to shoot them while they're asleep, are you? Like, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be wicked. Or sticky wicked. No, no, that wouldn't be fair. And then, <laughs> so it's like Gary's kind of like, oh, I wouldn't do that. But then he goes through and starts blasting uh, control panels, gets out of the ship, and then the Aegis end up blowing the entire ship up with everybody <laughs> aboard. So it was like, okay, at first they were kind of insinuating a high-minded kind of thing, but then at the end they just blew them all up anyway. I thought it was well, kind of Roberta odd. was the only high-minded one. Uh, oh, Gary yeah, but... Seven said, you know, nothing he had could hurt him anyways. So I, I don't know. I'm assuming that maybe he would have shot him while they were asleep if he could. <laughs> maybe. But I just got the impression when I was reading it, uh, Gary was uh, being high-minded uh, and going, you know, going along with uh, her moralities and desire yeah. not, to, not, to, not to kill people unnecessarily. So you, you just mentioned it. What did you think about them blasting themselves out into space and then being beamed over to the ship? Well, uh, I thought it was kind of cool because, you know, th there's been a variety of science fiction stories over the years where something like this has happened. Some of them are depicted in, in more realistic fashion than others. But, man, they must have grabbed them awful fast. Because I, I know how this was uh, depicted, I believe, what, oh, there was a... Um, Battlestar Galactica? No. Oh, was there? Well, yeah, that... Uh, I forgot the character's name, but she was blown out into space. But she well, was she died. But well, was to, the, no, no. Uh, the the engineer and his girlfriend, um, 
launch themselves wife. out of the out of the launch bay into a shuttle that was like right outside with the doors open and yet I mean so they were only in space for maybe two seconds. And remember they they spent like the next couple episodes in a pressure chamber because of, of the damage that they, they sustained. Yeah, I remember something about that. But they never actually showed them physically again. Uh, what I was thinking of was was a movie, uh, Event Horizon. Event, I think it was Event Horizon. Where there's a character that actually gets blown out into space. And he's like tumbling, weightless, in space. Trying to get to, the, to another hatchway or something. And there's like blood spewing out of him and he's all screwed up and his eyes are all screwed up and stuff right um and i thought that was gross but also perhaps a little bit more real i don't know if it's realistic but i mean you gotta imagine you'd be pretty screwed up if you went through something like that so yeah i've seen event horizon i don't remember it that well um at least i'm pretty sure it was event horizon where that happened it might be well that's the one with sam neill right yeah, that that might have been what happened in that. I can't remember, but but I just keep remembering that Battlestar Galactica, and, and to me that seemed like a realistic outcome of what would happen to you if you were in vacuum, even for just a brief moment. Oh yeah, yeah. that you know your the the pressure would you know be so That's much that you would have to spend the next few episodes in a in a, a pressure chamber before you can get back to normal. So yeah, I, and I don't even. I mean, he's not. He's a, running around shooting, and he says he's brought down the shield. So I don't even understand why he had to blast himself out if the yeah. shields were already down. Right, because it's more exciting that way. But yeah, it does make more sense that uh, they should be able to beam them out once the shields are down. But maybe what happens for Federation starships should not be applied to this advanced civilizations. Oh, actually. good point. So maybe the the hull itself was enough to keep the I teleportation. I don't know. I mean, they got teleporters strong enough to go across the galaxy. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. You know Good it's almost point. like they're making this up. I don't know. Oh, no, this is real, dude. <laughs> it's real. It's all real. Uh, I, I do like the little ISIS adventure. Oh, um, you did? Oh, I hated it. I thought it was cute. It was cute. So so they had, because I'm reading this in the uh, graphic novel, so they had that little adventure at the end of uh, issue four? Or Yeah. Okay. Oh, at yours, it's it's by itself at the end? Well, it's just a story in between chapters. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's the last two pages of, of, of the issue comic. number four. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. It, it reminded me a lot of, you know, the Batman the Animated Series. Yeah. They did kind of like a um, Catwoman type thing, and it was, it was a silent, like, short with uh, Batman and Catwoman kind of chasing each other. I think it was actually called The Chase. Anyways... Uh, this this two pages kind of reminded me of that because there was a lot of Catwoman, you know, walking across the edge of the building and then jumping, you know, and being silhouetted by the moon, and then right. you know Batman coming shortly after. So, I kept thinking of that a lot when I was uh, reading this, but I don't know if that was intentional or just a coincidence. Fine ideas are sometimes reused. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, and I'm I'm stretching. Cool. <laughs> Well, that's it for me on this one. Ditto. Excellent. So shall we move on to number five? Yep. And, and can I just do an impression before we get started? Please do. I am not a crook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I am not a crook. That's right. Yes, because, of course, we have a little uh, impression because our guest star of this next issue, number five, is President Richard M. Nixon. There you go. Who would have thought it? Uh, the right time period. So if you're going to have too many presidents, presidents I mean, you got to get Tricky Dicky in there. So uh, number five, I believe this was published September 2008. And you can correct me if I'm wrong there, Donovan, because, again, I'm reading from the graphic novel. Right. That's right. Okay. The artists are the same again. Uh, John Byrne, writer and artist. Tom Smith doing the colors. Letters by Robbie Robbins and Chris Murray. Edits by Chris Ryle. Oh, wait a minute. You have two people as the letterers? I do. That's weird. I just have Robbie Robbins. Well, what might have happened is those guys could have traded duties in different issues. But uh, because this is a consolidation... Uh, you're you're right. You're right. Because I think issue number two had a different letterer, right. and the rest was Robbie Robbins. You're right. Okay, okay. that well, makes but, sense. Okay, but but for the comic issue, you're right, Robbie Robbins. Uh, right. But for the consolidation, the graphic novel, I guess both. But right. Really for uh, this one, Robbie, I guess. I, I know that you don't have the cover, but can I just briefly explain what the cover looked like? You can, and I do have the cover. But go ahead. Okay. Well, were you gonna do it? I wasn't going to, but because I like this cover. Okay, so you've basically got uh, mirror images of Nixon. Two of the uh, Nixons be looking at each other, surprised, and about ready to do something about it. And then in the background, we see Seven, Roberta, and Isis looking on in both concern and shock. Concern in Gary's case, shock in Roberta's. And I can't tell what uh, Isis's facial expressions are. Uh, that facial expression is hungry. <laughs> hungry. That's like a triple. There you go. Let's start. February 1972. Our story opens in China. On the eve of Richard Nixon's famous trip to China that helped to thaw relations to some degree between the U.S. and China. It's night, and the chairman of China and his party enter a research facility where they are greeted by a team of scientists of some kind. They exchange pleasantries and talk about a project that was just completed in the nick of time. They make their way into a room full of scientific equipment. A man in a patient's smock and head wrapped in bandages is led in to the room. The bandages are removed to expose a man that looks just like President Richard Nixon. Scene shifts to Air Force One, where Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln step through a door with a strange glow on the other side. Roberta is impressed to be aboard Air Force One. A Secret Service agent approaches them, asking who they are and stating that he d did not see them come aboard. Gary shows fake credentials, stating that he is a colonel in the NSA. To seal the deal, Gary uses his ever-handy wonder pen to render the Secret Service agent docile and open to the idea of checking with the chef as to what dinner menu is. Roberta spots Nixon and is flummoxed by being in the same room with a president. Nixon hears her talking to Seven and notices the comely young lady. He introduces himself, saying something about President Lincoln not having to play on the international stage like he does, and does something to Roberta's hiney as he walks away. Hmm. They land in China. Gary's pen continues to get a workout as they work their way into one of the limousines in the presidential party that is driving to their hotel. 
Outside the hotel, they are greeted by a lovely young Chinese girl that is actually Isis in human form. She has apparently been transported there by Beta 5 with knowledge of the hotel layout. She shows them into the hotel the back way and takes them to Nixon's hotel suite. They scan the room for anything suspicious when the president and his secret service detail enter. Gary freezes them with his pen and removes the memory that they were ever there. When they depart the room, Roberta lets her distrust of the president get the better of her, asking Gary if they can just ask him if he is doing anything, quote, bad. She figures in the, quote, truth serum state that the pen put him in, a simple question like that could confirm long-held suspicions. Gary kills the idea, saying, without any evidence of malfeasance, it would be a wrong thing to do. They return to Seven's Manhattan office. They ask Beta 5 if its monitoring of the communications traffic between Beijing and Moscow has uncovered additional clues. Beta 5 reports nothing conclusive, but there are repeated references to something called Janus, the Greek god with two faces that protects gateways and borders to states in time of war. Seven says they need to find out what the Chinese are up to, so it's back to China for them. Seven playfully asks Roberta where Isis is, saying he thought they left her in the office. Huh. Cut to the Chinese hotel where Isis is covertly watching Nixon and his entourage in her feline form. Isis shifts into her Chinese girl human form and gets onto the Chinese team accompanying Nixon via forged papers and Nixon's apparent fascination with pretty girls. Roberta and Seven arrive at the basement of the Chinese central government building. They take the stairs to be in time to witness the formal ceremony slash photo op where Nixon and the Chinese chairman Mao publicly meet. Later that night, Isis is posted on the ledge outside Nixon's hotel room, watching the president and the first lady. She moves along the ledge as Nixon moves to the bathroom. Nixon is faced by a man that is the spitting image of himself right down to his pajamas. Two hooded thugs move in and put a bag over the real Nixon's head. Isis runs to contact Seven. Later that night, Gary, Roberta, and Isis enter Nixon's bedroom. They sedate Nixon and his wife and tell Beta 5 to scan the room. It confirms Pat's identity, but says the DNA of the fake president is from somewhere in Soviet Georgia. They get the fake president out of the room through the bathroom passageway the kidnappers used to get into the bathroom earlier that evening. They follow it to its exit onto an alleyway, but the alley is empty. They use the ever-resourceful Beta 5 to track the real president since it had a fix on him earlier in the day. Meanwhile, in an undisclosed secret location in China, Two Russian agents are speaking to the Chinese kidnappers while Nixon sits in his pajamas with a sack over his head. The lead Russian is arguing with the Chinese kidnappers over who gets to interrogate Nixon first. Silently, Seven, Roberta, Isis, and the fake Nixon enter the room and Gary zaps the lot of them with his wonder pen. Gary checks the lead Russian's identification while Roberta takes the sack off Nixon and unties his bonds. 
Gary goes to have Beta 5 scan the president to make sure his captors have not done anything to him when the fake Nixon snaps out of his funk and grabs a machine gun from a dazed Chinese soldier. He blasts away at 7, but luckily the gun jams before he hits anything. Fake Nixon throws the gun, hits 7 in the head, and takes off. Real Nixon takes off after fake Nixon, while Roberta helps Gary. Fake Nixon takes a gun and lays in wait for the real Nixon. When suddenly Isis, in cat form, attacks fake Nixon. Real Nixon is now seeing fake Nixon and then attacks to try to disarm him. The gun goes off and one of the two Nixons falls with a bullet wound. Which one is the real Nixon? The surviving Nixon says he's the real Nixon, but they really don't know for sure. What Gary does know is that some Nixon must make it to Air Force One by morning or World War III could be the result. They make it onto Air Force One, still not sure if the real Nixon is on the plane or dead back in China. Gary and Roberta discuss the bad situation when Gary comes up with a solution. Gary will make sure the surviving Nixon does not remember anything about the events of the past 24 hours. And further, he'll make sure that he truly believes he is the real President Nixon. Roberta has misgivings. August 1974 Roberta and Mr. Seven transport into the Manhattan office, just back from an off-world mission. Beta 5 plays them a recording of something it thinks they'll be interested in. Nixon's televised resignation of the presidency. Beta 5 thought they would want to see this since they were concerned they put the wrong Nixon back in the White House. Roberta observes that the Watergate wiretapping took place prior to the Chinese trip. So the real Nixon was involved in all that. She also says that if they did send the wrong Nixon home, right now the imposter's handlers in Beijing and Moscow must be seriously ticked off. And that's the end of the main story. However, they have another cute little uh, short tale called Aha! Roberta arrives at the office on a fall or winter morning, uh, since she's all dressed up in winter clothing, with a tray of coffee for she and Mr. Seven. She trips, and the coffee goes flying. Roberta is behind a desk, trying to blot up the spilled coffee with Kleenexes, when she tells Isis to grab some paper towels out of the closet in reception. Isis leaps off her perch and fetches the towels. Suddenly, Isis stops in her tracks, turns, and sees the in-control Roberta sitting comfortably with her feet up on the desk, saying to Isis, Getcha! Isis is no ordinary cat, and now Roberta has proven it. End of story. And end of the, uh, the, the issue, apparently. So that's what it was all about, to prove that Isis knew what she was saying? Oh, oh yeah, 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 that Isis is not a normal cat. Because you'll yeah. notice that even in this story, Gary has that little spot where he says, when they're in the office, uh, I wonder where Isis is. Did we leave her here? So, at this point, there's a little running gag going where Roberta doesn't realize that Isis is, is actually a shapeshifter. Yeah, it's gotcha. More than she appears. That's funny, because I was really scratching my head on that last bit trying to figure out what, what they were talking about, um, or what, what that was about. Yeah. Well, you scratched your head on that. 
Maybe you can help me, because to some degree I was scratching my head about this and the main story. Okay. So when Roberta is saying, you know, if if it was the wrong Nixon in the White House, then I bet his handlers in Beijing and Moscow are seriously ticked off. It's like, mm. I mean, well, okay. So it's been like a year and a half or something since the China trip, mm-hmm. and and even if it was a bad, <clears throat> uh, the 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 imposter sitting at the White House, he has no idea supposedly. So the Chinese and Russian handlers, if even if they tried to contact him, he wouldn't know what they were talking about. So it's like the Chinese handlers and the Russian handlers, you know, they got ticked off a long time ago when they couldn't couldn't get this guy to say anything. Or maybe the the, the bad Nixon was the guy that died. Although, quite frankly, I think that's doubtful. Really, um, I, I I I was kind of thinking that maybe the the bad Nixon was the one that died and this truly was the good Nixon even though okay well I'm interested in knowing because this could have gone either way it, it could have why, it's, do it's you, ambiguous. why do you think because this is one of those like uh, English literature things where it's like <laughs> well there's no way to know for sure so you know pray tell well why, no why well my my feelings are just uh, I just assume <laughs> I, don't have, <laughs> I don't have any I don't have any backup you know, story-wise, as to why I think this, but I just, I felt that I just wanted it to be the real Nixon. Oh. Okay, so here's my reasons why I think it's the <laughs> fake one. Uh, uh, number one, I, I don't think Nixon was ever in the military. I mean, he's a politician. Um, right. I, I don't even know if the guy ever shot a gun. Where the Russian guy, you don't know who he is, but odds are he's a spy that probably has military training. And he had the gun in his hand. So... I think a Russian spy would have a better chance of in, in a mano y mano kind of competition, especially if he had the gun in his hand, than probably an out of shape, flabby president. Right. Also, that kind of makes things more interesting, doesn't it? But whatever. I mean, you know, theoretically, he couldn't. You see, the the whole thing is kind of BS because think of all the things and all the people that Nixon would know. You know, of course, I I suppose fake Nixon had to be briefed on some of that stuff, too. But he's not going to know every detail. Exactly. That that the real Nixon and his wife have had. Exactly. So could he really pull off the uh, charade? And especially if he didn't even know it was a charade. So I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's a that's a that's a point for you for your position. But, you know, just going off of positioning of the frames, the pictures. When it shows fake Nixon fighting real Nixon, uh, fake Nixon has the gun in his right hand, and when the gun falls to the ground, it's right underneath fake Nixon's hand and the right Nixon, the which in the earlier panel was known to be the real Nixon, is the one that falls down dead. Right. Well, so and, and and you know they don't show any background, so you don't know if they've yeah. been turning around fighting or, or what. But because the gun is right underneath the the hand of the right hand of a Nixon, and we know that uh-huh. the fake Nixon was holding it in his right hand, yeah. makes me kind of think maybe it, it might be the fake Nixon that that still lived. Yeah, and I I, I don't think you know that that's fine that you interpreted that way. I didn't. And I think Byrne purposely wanted you not to know. 
I, I think I think so. I really don't think he would have drawn it in such a way that he would right. be telling you. No, I agree. But and and I didn't even try to figure that out until you just mentioned it. <laughs> so you're just trying to you're just trying to you know just trying to uh, pawn that pawn that idea off on me because you know I'm I'm too lazy to go back and look at it all in that much detail. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just uh, I'm with you. I, I don't think that the fake Nixon would would be able to pull off being Nixon with absolutely every person that he ever comes in contact with. Yeah. Plus, real Nixon had all those recordings. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I guess fake Nixon could have listened to all those recordings and caught well, up yeah. on all the secret well, conversations that, yeah, that but, but you, real you Nixon think... was involved in. Well, you know, that that's a good point. Tricky Dicky was a very secretive, well, apparently... Uh, from what history tells us, uh, semi, they may have had secrets. So, you know, th- there's so many things he would know and where only a very few other people might know that would be around him during his presidency. Uh, right. You know, something's going to come up where only a very few people know and the Russians and Chinese don't. So they couldn't have briefed him on it. But, you know, yeah. the, the whole thing about being... It's the, a story. Yeah, the whole thing about the hypnopin erasing all memory except for him thinking he's Nixon. Yeah, and making him think he's Nixon. And so right. they erased and they implanted ideas. So but but if he did all that and the pen knew which memories to erase and which memories to keep the pen would know if he had to delete, you know, a whole lifetime's worth of information or just a few days worth to erase, you know, uh, the Gary Seven incident out of his head. So, right. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, 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 it's if you if you think ambiguous. about this too much, if you think about this too much, it all falls apart. <laughs> so, you know, the idea is you're not supposed to think too much. Just just take right. it, enjoy the story, and get on with your life. Right. Uh, I, I did like the the little joke about you know the Asian ISIS, um, her name being Ki Miao, and then someone saying Black Cat where. <laughs> I thought that was actually pretty funny. And is that actually Black Cat in Chinese? Uh, I, I think it's I think it's a, a, in Mandarin. Mandarin, okay. Well, uh, yeah, which you know that that's what I thought it was, but I didn't bother going looking anything up. But I didn't either. I'm just going off of uh, you know right. what what little I learned from uh, Milan. Uh, the, the there's a there's a uh, <laughs> there's a um, show on Nickelodeon, Hell, a preschool yeah. show with uh, uh what is her name? Dora the Explorer. No, she's she's Chinese and she teaches them Chinese words like Dora the Explorer taught uh, Spanish words. Oh, Milai Kaolan. Ah, I'm butchering that up, and I don't remember exactly what her name is. My son watches it from time to time, so I've seen an episode or two. Okay, cool. I've never seen it. Kids are too old. Could I bring up something? You could bring up everything. In the category of not having to think too much, I thought too much. So here's a few points. Okay, so if they're not sure which one is the real Nixon, why did Gary not just zap the surviving Nixon with his pen and ask him if he was the Russian or the president? 
So the pen seems to have this truth serum kind of effect on people. So why not just ask the surviving guy if he's the real one or not? Good he point. has no choice but to say it. So, okay, there's one thing. Seems like a, seems like a hole to me. Also, if they could not have Beta 5 scan the surviving Nixon to check and see if he's got that DNA from, uh, from Soviet Georgia right then because uh, B-5's uh, remote green cube thingy got broken, why couldn't they do that after they, they got another working one when they went back to the office? Good point. You know, and, and even if they, they didn't do it right then, I mean, a year and a half went past. I mean, what, I mean, couldn't they have had done it at any point in that year and a half? You know, just just so they just for their own, just so they knew. I mean, wouldn't you have been like monitor monitoring things more if you knew it was the wrong one? Whereas if you knew it was the real Nixon, it's like, OK, whew, OK, you know, we don't have to keep our eye on this guy. You know, just in case memories came back or something happened. Anyway, just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, good point. Um, another thing I'd like to mention is this whole idea of making an imposter think he's a person he is not reminds me of a storyline on the defunct Heroes TV series where Nathan Petrelli is killed, but the, the evil shape-shifting Siler takes his form, and is brainwashed by good guy Matt Parkman, played by uh, Greg Grunberg, who played Kirk's stepfather in Star Trek XI, into thinking that he was actually Nathan. So, Nathan, you know, so Siler thinks he's Nathan for a good portion of the whole season. So it's like, you know, this kind of sounds like what they did with the fake Nixon, well, with Nixon, whichever version he was. Uh, and I just wondered, you know, the, the, the guys that wrote... There was a whole team of writers on that show, and I know many of them were comic book fans. So I'm just right. saying this sounds familiar, but who knows? You know, I hadn't got that far in Heroes. Thanks for spoiling that season for me. It wasn't a good season. As a matter of fact, in my even though I was a Heroes fan, the first season, and I think, I think everybody will agree with this out there, the first season was great, groundbreaking, cool, loved it, and then each su- successive season got worse. Mm. Although, in that sequence, uh, in that second season there, where Nathan gets killed, we have one of our favorite Klingon actors, uh-huh, uh, Michael Dorn, yes, playing the president. Uh, only Pretty at the cool. very end. Well, yeah, but still, it was good seeing him. Right. That's one thing I loved about that show. They would grab all these people from old sci-fi franchises and throw them in there. Yeah, I was disappointed that, you know, the last scene of season two... Michael Dorn is introduced as the president. Yeah, yeah, you ever see him? And before? then you never see him again. Yeah, I was looking forward to more of that. I, absolutely, I was too. Mm. Oh well. <sighs> I thought it was rather odd how they depicted Nixon as having such a manly, unshaven appearance. I don't remember that. I mean, he—they he, keep on drawing him like with with five o'clock shadow or maybe ten o'clock shadow. I mean, he looks like some. You know, one of these modern dudes out of some primetime TV drama where, like, nobody can shave anymore. Well, you didn't know that Nixon was Wolverine and, and grew his hair. <laughs> like, every hour he had to shave. Oh, I didn't know that. No, I, I think Nixon did have – I think he did sh- have to shave a lot because he his, – his hair grew pretty fast. I did. You, you, <laughs> you, you are, a, uh, are a student of history, my friend. Well, I just 
I I have thought that in the past. I don't I don't I haven't read it anywhere, but you do see him a lot with a five o'clock shadow. Oh, do you? Yeah, and they you know they mention it on the first page of this comic that the reason why they picked this guy was well, yeah. because he had super fast growing hair follicles. Well, yeah, he which... had to have the right amount of stubble, which, <laughs> which I guess I the Chinese was... can't do. But and, no, and... I'm absolutely agreeing with you that I thought that they they depicted him with too much stubble. And I believe, and I believe the reason they did that was to support the statement in the beginning, because then that gives a reason why the Chinese would go and get the Russians involved. Because they're kind of competitors. I mean, they you know they gang up on the U.S. and the uh, and Europe when they can, but they don't trust each other either. So I can see the Chinese not wanting to have the Russians involved in this game unless they had to. And I thought this was the justification, but mm. it's still I didn't. Yeah. Anyway. No, I didn't. I'm with you on that one. Did you catch the typo? What was it? Because. Well, okay, I can. It's on page one ten of the graphic novel. Not sure it was what it was in the comic, but when Seven and the sleeping uh, fake president exit the room, you know, in in the hotel room, the mm-hmm. bedroom, into the hidden passageway, Seven mm-hmm. says, "Must have has some function in the original structure." So it should have been must have had some function in the original structure. You know, when they go into the secret passageway. Okay, that's it. Man. <laughs> I was uh I remembered that there was a I thought that there was two glaring typos cuz I read these and then I went back and wrote my notes on them later. And then yeah. and and I was I kept thinking that they were in this this next Dr. McCoy one. So before we started recording, I went back and and rescanned throughout that whole book and I couldn't find any of I couldn't I couldn't find the typo, and I kept thinking I remember Gary saying it at some point, but I think this this was it. Must have has. Right. Thank you, Ken. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm happy to exercise my inner English teacher, and come up with these things. And I'm really surprised. I mean, <laughs> you made the same point in the last in the last issue or the last episode. They had the opportunity. I mean, people proofread these things, right? So in the original publication, but then they had the opportunity too when they put it all together for the graphic novel. They didn't fix it there either. So I just it just looked kind of odd. Or were you finished with your list? Because I was going to mention one thing. Let me just say one more thing, and then I'm done. Okay. I think this was really a good. A good this is good writing. It's a good. It's a good issue. It wasn't the most uh, positive picture of President Nixon that I've ever seen. But I, I think the idea of having the imposter potentially actually being in the White House, I think that is pretty cool. I think, I think there were some very interesting ideas in this uh, issue. I liked it. I'm done. <laughs> well, what I was going to mention, you mentioned very briefly just a second ago that you could scan the imposter for – Georgian DNA. Right. Soviet Georgia DNA. What does that mean? Well... You you can scan somebody and know where they grew up and where their allegiances are just based on their DNA? Well, okay. Allegiances? No. (laughs) That's that's in personalities. You can't even tell where they grew up. I mean... Well, okay. The real Nixon's family had to come from somewhere and... 
it just it seemed odd that they could scan somebody and say, "Oh, you grew up, or are you from Soviet Georgia?" Well, you don't know that my parents could have been from there, or my great 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 grandparents could have been from there, and I was you know well, raised in the United States and well, yes. Ohio. Yes. And I'm just a good Quaker boy and uh, <laughs> president of the United States. You know that just didn't make sense to me. Well, I I, I was I would. Maybe I accept. Maybe you've got a good point here, and maybe I shouldn't have just accepted it so easily. But I will say that you can tell a lot about people from their DNA. Do I know all the stuff you can tell? Heck no. I'm no DNA scientist. But I did kind of accept it, and maybe the purity of the DNA, that whatever markers are typical for people from a certain region. Uh, I mean, the more time you spend in the uh, U.S., the more likely you are going to be... Um, intermingling from people from uh, that have DNA from, from other lineages, maybe other parts of the, uh, the nation. I mean, if anybody took a but look at my DNA... that could happen in Georgia, Soviet Georgia, too. I well, mean, I don't think it's the kind of melting pot America is, which is where Nixon was raised. So, I don't know. I, I'm just thinking there's more of a... If you had a pure genetic base, you'd probably say a higher probability of them being from, you know, a certain portion of the world. Whereas if you did have, a, like, more of a mutt DNA like I have, and, and who knows, I have no idea what Nixon's lineage is. You know, maybe he had more of a mutt background, so you can kind of tell the difference. I don't know. I don't know. I, that was the one part that I was just like, uh, okay, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Just go with it. Right, exactly. you got to do that at the end. Yeah. And, and I do think that this reading this one the same week that I was catching up on this season of Doctor Who was funny because in the, the first two episodes of Doctor Who this season, mm-hmm. Richard Nixon is a big player. <laughs> he just comes back. Tricky Dicky comes back. There he and is. it was quite funny that, you know, the doctor's walking around. He's like, oh, you, you should record everything that goes on in here. <laughs> and I started busting out laughing and my niece and nephew were like, what's so funny? And I'm like, yeah, he did. <laughs> he did. He did. Anyways, that's funny. good stuff. That is. Good. I, I don't have anything else to add to this this issue. It was good. I liked it. All right. So that was it for Assignment Earth. But as we said, Gary Seven reappears uh, at least two more times. But he has a big playing part in Star Trek: Leonard McCoy Frontier Doctor, issue number three, which. You know, we'll read number one and two next week, but this is actually more of a continuation of Star Trek The Crew number four, which we reviewed way back in episode 21, where it was, uh, we were doing the the Pike era, and the crew involved uh, Commander Pike at the time and number one on the Enterprise. So, in that issue, just to give a, a brief reminder uh number one and pike go to a planet that is been taken over by cloned men that are bred for warfare that have broken out into little camps and they're basically fighting each other with bows and arrows and spears and stuff so that planet obviously is the planet where Gary Seven sent the or Beta Five actually sent the clones from Star Trek Assignment Earth number three, which we reviewed last week. 
So anyways, that's the background of this story, so uh, we'll just jump straight into it. Star Trek Leonard McCoy, Frontier Doctor, number three, came out June 2010, written and illustrated by John Byrne, covers by uh, Laverne Kandowski, letters by Neil Utaki, and edits by Chris Royale. There's actually two covers for this. One is a starfield and circulating uh, a picture of Dr. McCoy conversing with a two-headed creature. Uh, and the creature is saying, if I could walk that way, I wouldn't need beryllic powder. Ha, ha, ha. That's a good joke, which I don't get. <laughs> and then the second cover shows Dr. McCoy, Dr. Duncan, and an uh, Andorian female named Fila. Uh, are in a battlefield about to be squashed by a gigantic tank. So those were the two covers for this particular issue. So it uh, starts off with McCoy and the Andorian uh, female named Thela. They're dodging explosions and weapons fire. Uh, Thela is shouting, Duncan, where's Duncan? While McCoy is telling her to keep moving and that Duncan was, uh, and we find out that Duncan was separated after the attack began. So don't get confused. None of this happened in issue number two. It, it's a, it'll all be told here in a second. So don't don't worry that you're missing anything. So uh, they eventually find refuge in a tunnel, and Thela attempts to leave again to search for Duncan, but McCoy stops her. Just then, they are discovered by several identical-looking men in military garb. They don't care about McCoy's plea that he's part of some medical team from the Federation. When Thela attempts to leave again to search for Duncan, one of the soldiers smashes her in the skull with the butt of his rifle, knocking her out cold. McCoy fears that she might have spinal damage, but uh, is not able to check on her, and he is marched further into the tunnels at gunpoint, uh, while one of the other soldiers roughly carries the unconscious Thela. They are marched into an obvious headquarters of some sort for these soldiers, complete with huge hangar filled with dozens of monstrous-looking tanks. Uh, McCoy is thrusted into a seat where a blonde man in a more casual-looking clothes starts questioning McCoy about why he is on the planet. McCoy explains that his small medical ship was ordered to investigate the planet. It seems that the planet in question is due for an inspection since it has not been investigated since uh, its discovery about ten years ago. Uh, when their little ship arrives in orbit, Thela and Duncan are surprised that the planet's condition does not match that of the last scans. Uh, they were expecting a planet uh, on par with Earth's Bronze Age, but now they see a planet that's uh, war-torn and almost devoid of life. As Duncan takes the small ship into the atmosphere, a missile is shot from the surface and heads straight for the ship. Duncan is able to perform some fancy maneuvers and skims the surface of a mountain close enough so that the missile impacts the surface and not the ship. However, the ship does end up taking some shrapnel and is forced to land on the planet. When they exit the ship, they find that they landed in an aftermath of a huge battle, with hundreds of dead soldiers strewn about this landscape. Checking on the condition of one of the fallen men, Thela touches the soil with her hands and finds that it burns her skin due to the amount of weaponized chemicals that has been soaked up in the soil. As the trio are putting on gloves, 
their ship is blasted with another missile, and Duncan is separated from McCoy and Thela. And then we're back to real time. So that was the end of the story. And McCoy is broken out of his retelling of the events by the interrogator, who states that the story is plausible, but he does not necessarily believe it. He states that his partner, G23, is more adept at getting the truth out of people. With that, an identical-looking blonde man comes up to McCoy. McCoy at first thinks that these two might be twins, but then he realizes that they are clones. Before the torture can begin, a sound emanates from behind the two blonde men, and they fall to the floor fast asleep. Gary Seven steps from behind the two and apologizes for not getting there sooner. They're soon joined by Roberta Lincoln, and the trio make their way to where Thela is located, knocking out a few of the identical-looking guards along the way. McCoy scans the unconscious Andorian and finds that she's actually okay and wakes her. As they're making their escape, they stumble upon two Klingon men walking with one of the blonde clones, discussing their next shipment of supplies that the Klingons are actually supplying to the cloned human. Seeing this, McCoy has had enough with Gary dodging his questions about what's going on, and he forces Gary to spill the beans, and Gary reluctantly does so with yet another flashback. So now we see an explanation of the 1969 events where the American military created a clone army. When the clones were awakened, Beta-5 was able to teleport them, to a distant planet. Then, hundreds of years later, Gary's mysterious benefactors checked on the displaced clones and found out that they were still at war and had been given advanced weaponry. They pulled Gary from the 20th century to investigate. When Gary and Roberta arrived, they discovered that the Klingons had been giving the clones weapons. Alright, so that ends that flashback. So now Gary leads McCoy to his most recent discovery. And they enter a nearby room and find it filled with babies and Dr. Duncan. While Thela and Duncan have a passionate reunion, McCoy is very confused about where these babies are coming from with a planet full of cloned men. Before any answers are given, some very Sarah Connor-looking women come in and shoot Gary in the shoulder. They threaten to shoot McCoy in the head unless everyone follows them. Uh, they do so, and they are led to a room full of Klingons. The Klingons explain that they found this primitive human planet years ago, and they started to give them weapons and watched as they committed war on each other as some sort of sport. So they were more of a spectator sport that they could place wagers on and things like that. Eventually, they were able to create clone women to add to the mix to give men yet another thing to fight for and to keep a supply of soldiers up. Now that the Federation knows what the Klingons have done, the Klingons decide they need to beam back to their ship and they plan to destroy the planet to cover their tracks. And so once they beam away, uh, the planet is bombarded with disruptor um, fire from orbit. So our heroes are trapped and it looks like it's grim. They're about to die. Until... They find themselves materialized on the transporter pad of the USS Yorktown, which is an old-style Constitution-class starship. Duncan takes Thela, Gary, and Roberta to sickbay, and McCoy heads to the bridge. 
There he finds a white-haired woman, who is only referred to as Admiral, ordering the Klingons to cease fire. When they do not do so, she fires photons and the Klingon ship is destroyed. Sometime later in the conference room, Duncan and Thela tell the crew that they are planning on staying on the planet to help guide the clones towards peace. McCoy has a brief one-on-one with the Admiral, and we find out that she was once Pike's second-in-command on the Enterprise. So, in case you didn't know, she's number one. Da-da-da! Big surprise. All right, so McCoy bids farewell to Thela and uh, Duncan. Uh, Thela even states that uh, she would consider naming their first son Leonard if it didn't happen to also sound like a very rude word in Andorian. McCoy goes to sickbay to speak with Gary, but instead of seeing Gary, he's greeted by a mysterious person who states, I wondered when when you would get your grumpy butt down here, to which... McCoy exclaims, I'll be damned to be continued. Excellent. Excellent. So this was actually a really good one. I I liked how it tied in Assignment Earth and the crew and this series. So it it makes it feel like it's really uh, a single universe, a single Star Trek universe. Cool. Because I really liked this one too and I thought maybe I was... uh going a little overboard in how much I liked it. But I'm happy to see I'm not the only one. Nope, I thought it was good. I mean, it it makes sense that it would all be tied together because it's all written by John Byrne, who mm-hmm. did all three miniseries. But uh, I, I really like it when stories can flow together and, and, and really makes you feel like like they didn't just hit the reset button after the, that issue was done which a lot of these have, have felt that way. Right. You know, that, that all comes from good writing. And, yeah. uh, and somebody who's actually actively, not just punching a clock, but really trying to create something that, uh, that uh, probably he enjoys and then can bless us readers with the same kind of enjoyment. So I don't want to get too mushy on here, but you know, I, I think he does a really good job. May I... So, okay, so I, I was kind of thinking of this comic as kind of, it really is almost like a roller coaster ride for me. As the story progressed, it went in directions I wasn't expecting. Uh, right. So you think of all the, the typical lazy way you could write a story like this, because you, you told me about this this comic. I'd never read it, read it before. And about the fact that Dr. McCoy goes back to the Planet of the Clones. And I was thinking, oh, man. You know, I'm just trying to think about all the ways that things could have been happening because those guys were pretty violent. And, you know, who's who's McCoy down there with? I mean, he probably no military. So how could this work out? And everything I might have thought happened, you know, just was turned on its head. And I just thought it was very good. Uh, may, may, may I may I list my my top 10 uh, surprises? <laughs> sure. OK, so number one, getting shot down with missiles. From the clone planet, where last time we saw them, they were using, like, swords and stuff. That was surprising. Yeah. Um, the Joanna being destroyed, which is McCoy's and company's ship that they get from planet to planet on. I was not expecting that. It's like, it's like the Enterprise blowing up. It's like, what? I, ah! How could their ship be blown up? Duncan and Thela being an item. Okay, so this comes from not 
reading all the issues beforehand but i read a little bit of the first issue just to understand who the characters were or at least be introduced to them and in the span i mean they all met each other at the beginning of of issue one right um and it's like they jumped in in an issue and a half to them being an item so it's like duncan you move fast my man so <laughs> i was surprised about that it's true love man uh, it is it, it was it was meant to be Klingon showing up on the planet. I mean, I wasn't expecting that. Seven showing up on the planet with a very different-looking Roberta. I mean, I knew Seven was in the story, too, because I think you had mentioned it. But anyway, when, when, when Roberta came in, it's like, she didn't look like Roberta to me, at least not in those early scenes. So I was thinking, who is this chick? Uh, she's with Gary, but is she like another kind of companion thing? But no, it turns out to be Roberta. Well, yeah. <clears throat> You didn't know at first if this was if he time traveled there or if he lived to be a thousand years old and this was just his new companion. Exactly. So I'll agree with you. Those first couple of panels, I wasn't quite sure if she was Roberta or not. Right, and depending on the time period, I mean, the comics we saw, the issues we saw with her in Assignment Earth, she was quite young, you know, probably college age, young woman. This could have been. You know, 10 years later, who knows? She's a more mature woman. Hair's different. She's a little bit more assertive. She knows what she's doing. She's not so ditzy. Uh, even though she's very intelligent, even in the uh, the Assignment Earth ones, she is a little ditzy at times at times, or at least comes off that way anyway. In this one, I didn't get much of that at all. I mean, she seems to be a, a much more mature woman. Right, and, not, she, and still she, not old. And she knows a lot about what's going on with the Klingons right. and things like that, which... Right. You know, maybe she shouldn't really know if, due to the time, timeline and things like that. Sure. Right. Okay, another one. Seven getting shot again. So, <laughs> he got shot in issue four of Assignment Earth. But in this issue, he says, uh, Gary says, I've never been shot before. And he says something like, I don't think I like this. Which I don't blame him. But it's like, you got shot in issue four of Assignment Earth. And it's the same writer, so it's right. like I was a little thrown off by that. Well, can, can I mention something about that? Okay. See, I wasn't sure if if they were trying to imply that this happens after issue number three, which was the clone oh. issue, what? but before issue number four. Oh. But the reason why I think that it definitely happens after issue number five is because in this book, Roberta calls Beta 5 Betty Yeah. in front of Gary, and he doesn't he doesn't act like it's new yeah. yet at the beginning of issue number five she refers mm. to or at issue number four she refers to betty as being uh her name for beta yep. five right after she so, did the the fashion model thing yeah and he's like what and she's like oh that's what i call beta five so since it was new to gary at the beginning of issue number four that to me proves that this has to come after that which would mean that he had already gotten shot once sure okay so that's my, uh, you know, Scooby-Doo investigation. <laughs> plus, she, plus she looks older. And again, it's the same artist. So, although, you know, drawing, I mean, I guess these were published in different years. Yeah, different there was about periods, but... two or three years in between the publishings. Okay. So um, that's another thing that I, I thought kind of indicated that, 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 that this was later in their lives, uh, Gary and uh, Roberta's lives, when they came forward right. uh, to be on the clone planet. So uh, another one that was a surprising twist. The, the clone that was leading them into the hangar gets totally ripped apart by an explosion. <laughs> Very cool art. 
very like that, but very surprising. But again, it, also when Gary gets shot, it's fairly graphic. So that was also a little unexpected, a little, little, a little shocking. But when the guy gets ripped apart, kind of like uh, Doctor Manhattan in the, <laughs> it, well, it was kind of like that, wasn't it? Yeah, it shows like I mean, you don't in know the if the little chunks you see is uh, him or just or some sort of shrapnel or something. or something. But yeah, I guess if you if you take that that all these little chunks around him is parts of him, then yeah, you're right. It is pretty graphic. Yeah, 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 pretty cool. And surprising. Um, another thing, another twist, the Yorktown showing up just in the nick of time. Thela and Duncan wanting to stay down on the planet and help the clones. It's like, you guys are nuts. Those people are going to skin you. Anyway, number one being captain of the Yorktown, another surprise. Uh, and she looks pretty, you know, she, except for the white hair, she doesn't look that old. I don't see a lot of, a lot of wrinkles being depicted. And then, of course... The, the capper is Leonard being a bad word in Andorian. Another unexpected twist. Yeah, so I was trying to remember. Do, is that a joke from the original show, or they just picked that up here? I, I don't remember that being a joke from the original show. I don't remember ever hearing it before. Right. But who knows? Maybe, maybe it was, and I just don't remember. I don't remember that. You remember it, though? No, I don't remember it. Oh. I was asking, because... I kind of remember some some show, probably Star Trek, where they finished it. They finished the show with some sort of comment that somebody's name was a bad thing. <laughs> or maybe I'm thinking of Alien Nation, where uh, the 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 human cop Matt yeah, Sykes, right? They make a comment that Sykes and Tanktonese meant uh, excrement cranium. Ah! <laughs> Shoot. Head. Okay, gotcha. Dude, try to bleep that out now. <laughs> Sorry. Colloquialism. <laughs> yes, that was the joke. Yes, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, yeah, it probably is something you've heard before. Uh, and that actually is a, a, a pretty good explanation right there, what you heard. Alienation. Yeah. A, a very good series. I haven't seen that in ages. Hmm. It was a good series. It was a good movie, and then it made a good TV series. Right. Yep. And comic book series. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised about that. Don't make a comic book out of anything these days. Not anything. Only fine things. Like, um, like True Blood and uh, Fringe and... Oh, The Ghost Whisperer. I saw that, that that's a oh, comic book series now. Wow. <laughs> that's great. Because we need more of that. Yeah. Oh, that that show makes my skin crawl. I think the the biggest missed uh, TV show that never got a comic book series, Golden Girls. Yeah, <laughs> they made a comic book out of that. They didn't. I can't. I can't imagine why. Mm, that would have been. I am surprised. That would have been comic book gold. Yeah, I think so. Anyways, was that your the end of your list? That was the end of my list. Now, I mean, I'm done with comments in general, but that was my my end of my list of of unexpected things in the story. So I didn't come up with a list, but one of the things that jumped at me at being pretty darn awesome as far as the artwork goes is when you see the Klingons and you have a mixture of smooth head Klingons and bumpy headed Klingons. To me, I thought that was awesome. I was like, okay, this this is pretty cool because this is this would be in the time frame 
after the original series, but before the movie where, you know, depending on what you want to believe, what happens to their heads, that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, either, either one would fly, you know, either depiction of the Klingons would fly in this, this timeline. And so he gave us and, both. And John Byrne gave us both. Cool. Which I thought was great. I did not even notice that. Yeah, it was subtle and they didn't draw attention to it, but, but when there's the group of Klingons, some of them have the bumpy heads, some of them have the smooth heads. Yeah, and the impressive thing about that is either – and you may know this because you, I guess you've been exposed to an interview by him. But either he's a hell of a fan or he does his homework. No, I think he's a fan. Yeah, okay. I, I would think so too because he just brings all these things into the storytelling. It's really cool. Yeah, so I've gone back to the picture, and you are indeed right. Chlor is bald and a smooth head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, I did look up Chlor just to see if he happened to be some character that's popped up before, and I didn't see any references to him. Yeah, he didn't seem familiar. Yeah. Although they do mention him by name quite a bit, so usually when they do that, they're really driving it home that you should know who this guy is. Right. So the Klingons are able to not only manipulate their own DNA so that they can get their glorious bumpy heads back um, around this time, but they're also able to take a cloned human male, change the genetic structure so that they can then clone a female human clone. That that is the explanation, yes. (laughs) Isn't isn't science great? They're awesome. And and, and the thing that always made me wonder about Klingons is everybody seems to be a warrior. Who the heck is coming up with all the science? And, and I know there's been an episode or two that's popped up from time to time, whether it be Next Gen or whatever, where they try, where they actually showed you uh, like a technical Klingon or a scientific Klingon or something. But, right. you know, it's like you don't see those guys very often. Well, they don't get, they're not glory hounds. No. no they're, they're just in the background making those, uh, you know, ships work and everything. And, right. Uh, so... Well, yeah, and I read somewhere that somebody was talking about how, and you might know this because you know the original series better than I do. Did they say that Romulans didn't have warp drive and they traded their cloaking technology with the Klingons in order to get warp drive? Was that ever mentioned in the Mm, original show? I don't think so. I do. You can't. You can't get anywhere without warp drive. Right. I do I mean, think you can't that, get out of your solar system without warp drive. Right. I do think that they, they traded ships for um, the cloaking technology. That I think they actually mentioned, that, that the Klingons traded you oh, know, ships to the, to the Romulans, and the Romulans gave them <clears throat> cloaking technology. But I never heard about the warp thing, and I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> nah. But anyways, that's kind of off subject of what we're talking about here. Yeah. I liked seeing the uh, old style Constitution class ship. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, and we've seen the old style Constitution class ships mixed from time to time with the uh, refitted Enterprise. Uh, so not everybody gets the refit right away. But uh, yes, it was good seeing it. Right, which wouldn't make sense because the time frame of this story is when the Enterprise is getting refit, and I uh, think that that's supposed to be the first Constitution ship that got refitted. It's the so. refit, so that makes perfect sense. Right. And actually, in issue one, Kirk mentions that. 
which right. we haven't read uh, officially issue one yet, but Kirk does mention about the refit of the uh, Enterprise going on. Right. Now, the uh, Yorktown was in episodes of the original series, right? Uh, I believe so. I could not tell you which ones. I'd have to look it up on the web, but I believe it was. It's been mentioned, definitely. Right. But I'm assuming it had a captain. Uh, yeah, they all do. But this one doesn't. This one has an admiral. Well, the Enterprise has had an admiral at the helm, too, from time to time. Right, so I'm wondering if that's what they were getting at, that that she, number one... Pulled a Kirk? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of sounds like it. If Kirk can do it, so can number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. But I did like seeing her as Admiral in this timeline. That It's kind of cool to see that, that, that makes she's still sense. around. Because obviously she was a first officer uh, for Pike uh, when Kirk was, you know, nothing. Right. So you'd hope, I mean, she's been around longer, so. Yep. Although she did keep passing up promotions, didn't she? Until she got the Enterprise. And then she was going to be Kirk's number one, but she got that nasty accident where that big container fell and crushed her spine and Spock had to step in. Yeah. Which, of course, was necessary. Right. Necessary. That was the, what was that? Star Trek Volume 1, Annual Number 1. Do you actually remember that? Wow, that's good. Yeah, I think so. That's that's a, that's an encyclopedic memory there, my friend. <laughs> it was written by Mark or Mike Barr. I remember that, too. I'm continually impressed. You, as you should be, my friend. As, as you, you should be. As you should be. Okay. Anything else on this one? I just want to say that when the Klingon ship uh, explodes through the self-destructed overheating of their impulse engines, I thought that was a pretty cool graphic and creative. Usually when ships blow up, you know, you get your, your, your shot of like a red explosion and then you got like little bits of the, uh, the, the, the ship. It kind of shows it exploding. No, this was different. Graphically cool. Big round source of very bright light. And then the Yorktown is in the foreground, all blacked out in kind of a silhouette. I thought that was very cool. Right. I thought you were talking about the next page where it just shows little chunks of it floating around. No. No, that's typical. At the actual point of explosion, that was the – that was more creative, I think. Yeah, I agree. I like that. That's all I have to say. That's it? About that issue. Uh, Except that I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think I said that already. I think you did. So, so yeah, this uh, Leonard McCoy series was was a pretty good one. I, I'm glad we're reading it. Um, hopefully, reading it out of order doesn't throw too many people off. Uh, it shouldn't. I mean, this is yeah. the only one's going to be thrown off, right? Yeah. And I feel like this was more of a continuation of the crew and Assignment Earth than it was issue number one and two. But I, I got the benefit that I've already read them all, so. You know, like you were reading, you were mentioning things that you didn't understand, and I was like, "Well, you know, so what? That they they love each other. We'll, we'll figure out why later." But yeah. <laughs> Anyways, well, the idea that they that they could fall in love it wouldn't be the first time that crew on a ship fall in love. It's just was just surprising because it happened so fast. But right, 
I agree. So next week we're going to do the rest of Leonard McCoy Frontier Doctor. Uh, before closing, though, we'll go briefly into what what else was going on here in 2008 when these uh, books were coming out. IDW was pumping out a lot of Star Trek stuff, so we won't go over that. But the Deep Space Nine Terok Nor series that I mentioned last week was still going on. Number We did number four and five. Hold on. Okay, so there was a Next Generation novel that came out in August called Greater Than the Sum, which was a continuation of their post-Nemesis storyline. I haven't read it. It's by Christopher Bennett, but it's it's what happens right after – not right after. It's several books into what happens after Nemesis with Picard being pretty much the only – Picard and Beverly being pretty much the only two people – on the Enterprise from the next gen cast, mm-hmm. uh, it was it, it's. I'm enjoying that uh, series, uh, but it's taken me a long time to get very far in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in September, the uh, Enterprise novel entitled Kobayashi Maru by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles came out, and this is after the Enterprise TV series. And it's leading right up to the Earth-Romulan War. Hmm. So the Kobayashi Maru is obviously, this is the real event that inspires the test that we see in Star Trek II and and various other comic books and things like that. Cool. Yeah. So I'm on the book before that as far as Enterprise reading goes, so I'm looking forward to getting to that one. And then uh, we'll go over... 2010 when the Leonard McCoy book came out next week when we go over all the other stuff that was going out in 2010 cool all right so that's it so until then uh, we'll be back next week shoot us emails at uh, star t comic book review at gmail.com or uh, and actually so- if you just listen to the clo- to the closing you can get all that detail. Yeah, but who listens to that? When Once the music starts, <laughs> nobody listens. Okay. <laughs> Just like they fast-forward through the opening. Nobody wants to listen to that, Ken. As, as long as they listen to our, our talking. I yeah, exactly. Well, we're the, we're the meat and potatoes. Nobody ever wants to eat the crust. I like crust, but okay. Yep. <laughs> okay, so episode number 47. 47. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Take care. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at starttcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes, or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.